I want to honor our time. Go ahead and grab Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 4, page 1044 of your pew Bibles. 1044, Philippians chapter 4. We're going to read one verse. We won't exegete it the way we normally do where we break it down and try to dive into it. I really want to use it as a launching pad for us to, to, to think more uh, bigger terms. We, we're done with our series on Solomon. And uh, before we start anything else, I, I'd like to uh, take a brief break and look at some things that are pressing. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. If you'll stand with me out of register God's word, a verse I'm sure many of us are familiar with. The Apostle Paul writes on the inspiration of, of the Holy Spirit. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, I have missed this congregation for, for weeks now, not feeling well last week, and opportunity to worship with another congregation two weeks ago. It is good to be in the house of the Lord on a Sunday morning. And Lord, I, I, I ask that you would do this morning as you have done so faithfully. Uh, and that is that you would open our hearts, and our minds, and our eyes, and our ears, our mouth, our hands, and our feet, that we would believe your word, apply your word, and be transformed by your word. That we live in a lost and dying world, and we desperately need the hope of Jesus. Would you transform the world by first transforming us? May I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your son we pray. Amen. Be seated. Many of you all know that my uh, wife is a, bit, is a bit of an artsy girl. And that means that we have art projects around the house, crafts going on all the time. Uh, and and any time that the missus and I are out in another city, uh, we I try to find an art gallery, out art museum to take her to because she she's just one of those weird artsy girls. And I do agree with her that country music isn't what it used to be, and our art is terrible. You agree with that, right? Our art is terrible. I can prove it to you. If you go to the University of Kit, sorry, Kit. Oh, man, that was difficult. If you go up to UK, up, up here, uh, not to be infused with the United Kingdom, they have their own art museum. And we've been there several times, and, and they usually have someone that they are showing off, some, some artwork and all that, and that's usually a waste of time. But you go up to the second floor, and, and they've got all kinds of art from all over the place. And it's a, it's a neat thing if you like art to see, and it's a pretty good collection. And my wife and I always agree, art is terrible. Modern art is just awful. I'll prove it to you. This is a real picture from the art gallery at UK. This is me looking at a piece of arts. If you want to know what that is, that is a fake plant of some sort lying on the ground. As a joke, I wanted my wife to take a picture of me acting like I was lost and just mesmerized by this fantastic work of arts. Here's a second picture from the same trip, me making fun of that, and that is me putting my hat on the ground, staring at it as if it's actual art. Now you tell me honestly, what is the difference? A fake piece of plant on the ground or a used Louisville bat's hat on the ground? Really no difference. After all, it is all subjective. This is what I mean by art is so terrible. One of the videos my wife and I like to watch on this subject is of an uh, um, art professor who he, he likes to do an experiment 
uh, with his students. He puts this image, a screenshot from the video up here, and he says, I want you all to share with me your, your, your impression of, of, of this artwork. What are some words that come to mind? And they say things like bold and innovative and deep and evocative and emotional. I'm making these words up. But you, you get the, they, they give these sort of answers to it. He goes, oh, good, good. It's actually my apron that I paint in. <laughs> this is what I mean that art, modern art, is so terrible. How is it that we've gone from the Sistine Chapel to splashes on a canvas? I think the answer is theology. I think the answer is worldview. We've always known, particularly in the Christian West, that art is a reflection of the culture that produces it. Art is a reflection of worldview. It is a reflection of philosophical presupposition. It's a reflection of theology. And one of the things we are discovering the hard way is that when God is relegated to the cultural corner, we lose something. And that is why many of us are struggling to understand what is happening around us? We all know something is wrong, but we just can't seem to put our finger on it. What is it exactly? And it's no wonder then that as our, as our art declines, and not just paintings, our movies, the only thing selling right now is superhero movies. As much as I like them, as you know, it's the same story redone. Before that is romantic companies, the same story redone. Here in a few days, weeks, hopefully never again, many of you are going to spend an entire month of December watching Hallmark movies. It's the same story over and over again. As if we are caught in the cycle of the same thing. Our art is terrible. Our music ruined by, by uh, auto-tune and stuff like that, right? We, it's just all of our art is terrible. That reflects a cultural moment. Every culture is defined by the God it worships. And what we are discovering is that we have a choice between us, either Christ on the one hand or chaos on the other. And we are choosing chaos. What I want to do unique to what we usually do, if you're here to want to know how to balance your checkbook, I'm not going to be very helpful to you ever. But, but I want us to talk about how the Christian worldview affects culture. Now, we've got to get our worldview right if we want to be effective evangelists and believers in a dark world. And so I want to talk to you about what theologians and philosophers have, 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 have developed known as the transcendentals. The transcendentals, that is the true, the good, and the beautiful. I promise you no other church is talking about this in the last 50 years or perhaps the next 50. But I am convinced that one of the greatest gifts of Christianity is the develop of these three, so much so you and I take it for granted. These three are fundamental to our faith, and they are fundamental to a functioning society. And I believe I will be able to answer all your questions about this weird world we live in. The first thing we need to know about the transcendentals is they are connected to the divine. Connected to the divine. Years ago, I saw a clip of Jay Leno doing his jaywalking. Some of you all may remember that, where he would take a, a, a microphone out of, out of L.A., because this was certainly work in L.A., and he would ask obvious uh, uh, questions to people to see what sort of bad answers they would give. And one of the questions he asked on this occasion was, how did Mount Rushmore get there? And one lady, she thought about it for a while, and she said, oh, I know, erosion. 
Erosion. Well, Jay Leno's thinking erosion. You mean to tell me over thousands and millions of years through the simple process of wind and rain and weather and climate that, that on the side of a mountain, a, a series of faces begin to form. And not just any faces before recognizable faces. And not just any four recognizable faces before presidents of the United States and a mountain found in the United States. Not just four presidents of the United States and the nation by which the presidents led, but the four of the best presidents of the United States. You mean to tell me that that happened by your road? She thought about it some more and said, I don't know, just luck, I guess. Well, she is foolish, of course. But that's precisely the way most Americans think about culture, society, civilization, marriage, family, love, gender, and everything else. We ignorantly take everything for granted. We presume things like equal justice, civil rights, human dignity are cultural norms in human history. We think they just happen. In truth, however, they are rooted deeply in theology. When we talk about the true, the good, and the beautiful, we are not talking about subjective or abstract ideas that might convince you that that is arts. We're not talking about the abstract. We are talking about the divine. Let's look at these. First of all, we have the, the true. God is truth. That is to say, the closer we get to God, the more acquainted we become of the truth. Jesus makes this abundantly clear, doesn't he? Remember on the eve of his execution, he's talking to the disciples. He says, guys, I'm going away, but don't worry. I'm going to go prepare a place for you so that, so that, that I, I will show you how to get there. And, and remember, Thomas is like, dude, where are you going? How do we get there? Right? You need to fill us in some information. You're talking funny. Remember what Jesus said, John 14, 6? Thomas, I'm the way. I'm the truth. You see then that you can't separate the divine from divine truth. There's an old uh, uh, story that you find if you read a lot of science, particularly theology of science, is, is that when scientists finally climb a new mountain and make a new discovery, what they find at the top of the mountain are, is a history, a long history of theologians who have been sitting there for a long time. All truth is God's truth. It is well known that Sir uh, John, or I put John Newton, that's the guy that wrote Amazing Grace, Sir Isaac Newton, he uh, uh, wrote a lot about science and advanced science pretty far, but in reality, he wrote more about the Bible, theology, and prophecy more than he ever did science. Kepler wanted to be a theologian before a scientist, but after his many discoveries, he, he said, quote, now uh, behold how through my effort God is being celebrated through astronomy. These uh, leaders understood that Discovery uncovers deeper aspects of the divine. These men and countless others would agree with the psalmist that, that the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies above his handiwork. Notice the significance of the single verse. The heavens declare it speaks, but you can't know what it says if you don't seek out the heavens, if you don't discover the heavens. And in the heavens, you'll discover something about the divine. And you'll see here how knowing the truth of the heavens gets us closer to the beauty of the divine. His beauty, his artistry is reflected in creation. If God is truth, we can agree on that, then he must be wisdom. We cannot know wisdom without truth. We cannot walk in wisdom without recognizing the truth. A society bent on life apart from the divine is a society rooted in foolishness, madness, and groundless emotion. 
A society that rejects truth in favor of myths is one built upon sand. This is the problem that we live in. Having rejected God, we have bought into myths. And so we are on sinking sand. Secondly is the good. In Mark chapter 10, a man comes up to Jesus and he comes before him and says, Good teacher. I think I, think I have it up here. Good teacher. And remember, Jesus says, uh, Good teacher. Good teacher. Be careful what it is you say there. There is no one good but God. Now, what Jesus is not saying is, hey, I'm not divine. Back off that train, right? It's not what he's saying at all. Rather, he's saying, you have no idea that when you call me good, you are right. Because only God is good, which is why he can answer the man's question regarding eternal life. One cannot know goodness or righteousness apart from knowing the righteous, good God. We've always understood this. This is why theology and divine revelation have lied at the root of Western morality, ethics, and policy. We would agree that things like equal justice is good. We would agree that human rights is good. We would agree that racism is bad. But who here can tell us why? Why? Why are these things? We've made moral conclusions, and without a foundation rooted in the truth, we can never know the good. Think about it. Darwin would have us to believe that equal rights rob society of survival of the fittest. I've noticed that increasingly, in the name of, we, 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 we use the language of equal rights, but in practice, often it seems we believe that some people are more equal than others. Or if they check the right boxes or, or have done the right things or that or posted the right things online, somehow they are more equal. History has taught us that tyranny and injustice often come either in the name of power or good intentions. I think C.S. Lewis is helpful here when he writes, Of all the tyrannies, a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive. It would be better to live under robber barons than under omnipotent moral busybodies. The robber barons cruelly may sometimes sleep. His cupidity, a word we need to bring back, may at some point be satiated. But those who torment us for our own good will torment us without end, for they do so with the approval of their own conscience. You see, what happens is that when you take out the true, good becomes murky. It looks like our art. It's subjective, but it becomes empowered and emboldened. History has shown that when the divine is an unwelcome authority to shape our morality, we will justify wickedness under the guise of good. Thirdly, there is the beautiful. The beautiful. Beauty originates in the divine. If you don't believe me, Climb a mountain, a snow-draped mountain, and wait for the sun to set. If you don't believe me, then, then look at the cosmos in the back of your uncle's pickup truck somewhere out in the country. Late at night and look at the stars. You will realize that this is not just molecules uh, 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 hovering in space. We are not just stardust, accidental byproducts. Rather, we are part of a beautiful tapestry given to us by a divine artist. Beauty traces its genesis to God. In fact, 
The Hebrew word for beauty in the Old Testament is often translated glory in the Old Testament, and rightly so. I'm a happily married man with a beautiful wife who's taking care of your kids right now in the back. And, and uh, over the years, I've, I've struggled to, to adequately express a, a, her beauty, right? I, so you use words that like gorgeous and stunning and, and you know, so on and so forth. And, and, and I think if that's true of her, a mere human, how, what word we use for the divine? What word is there? The closest we get in the Bible is glory. An awestruck glory of beauty. And even then it seems inadequate to describe the divine. We see this throughout the Bible. But for the sake of time, let us just consider the tabernacle. In the Old Testament when Israel is going through the wilderness, they, 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 uh, they are given instructions uh, Moses is given instruction by God, and he gives them to Israel, to construct a tabernacle. This would be a portable, uh, sacred space they could take with them through the wilderness. And a number of things had to be met for this tabernacle. One, it had to be practical. You had to know what door to go in, didn't you? You had to know uh, where to make the sacrifices and when to show up and how everything's being situated. That's a practical reality, right? We have signs that says, enter here, not there, right? We, that's practical. It had to be functional, right? Uh, it, 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 as a tent, had to be easily movable. So you had to be able to set it up quickly. You had to be able to tear it down quickly. It had to be functional. It also had to be durable. They are, after all, walking through the wilderness. And so it had to uh, be well made to the point that it could survive all of that. And once they get to the promised land, it will, it will be so durable, it'll last for generations before the temple was built. All of those things are true. Read the construction of the tabernacle, and it meets all of those requirements. But equally important was that the tabernacle had to be beautiful. Why? Because it was sacred space that reflected the divine artists. This is something we Baptists get horrifically wrong. Other than maybe our kids' department and one Sunday school room downstairs, do we have any rooms, maybe other than the youth room, that isn't plain white? We Baptists, we're just terrible at this. I remember where I served as pastor before. I was explaining some of these concepts to the church, and it was a small group, little Bible study, and I had one, one lady, uh, I was explaining that, that the Catholics, the one thing they get right is this. Because you, you walk into a cathedral that has that architecture has developed over thousands of years in Christian tradition that draws the worshiper above where, where God sits upon his throne. You, you have everything designed in such a way to solicit a response regarding the sacred. And I remember explaining that, and, and I remember one of our members, a, a, a widow lady, says, Oh, that's why when I walk into the Catholic Church, I, I, I feel so close to, to God. I'm like, yeah, it ain't because of the theology, right? Uh, they're actually on the something. They're on the something. And we, we Baptists, we're, we're afraid of, 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 of messing up our, our white walls, of course. But sacred space should reflect the glory and the beauty of the vine. And so the tabernacle was modeled after creation, particularly the Garden of Eden. It had a lot of greens and blues in it. You had a menorah, which was a, a reminder of the uh, Garden of Eden's tree of life. And, and everything else was to draw the, the worshiper's attention to the divine. As society moves away from the vine, we lose any real sense of beauty. This is why we've exchanged the beautiful for the profane, the sacred for the shallow, the holy for the ugly, the orderly for the chaotic. Just look across the board. 
Compare artists of 100 years ago to artists now. Read their lyrics. Compare our poetry, our arts, our marriages, our churches, our communities, our cities, our homes. We've exchanged the beauty, beautiful, <coughs> for the ugly, excuse me. And this is because we have rejected the divine. Well, not only do we trace the transcendentals to the divine, but we need to see them as unified. Not only is it necessary to trace these, uh, these transcendentals that make for a just, orderly, good, and civilized society, we must treat them equally with one another. I have always had an appreciation and even interest in apologetics. For those who don't know, that is the art of, of knowing how to defend your faith in a favorable way. So that means that when someone challenges you, you say something more like, oh yeah, well you're dumb, owned, right? Apologetics is a lot more involved than that. But growing up, now that works online, but I mean, it doesn't work online, let's be honest. But growing up, I was taught all kinds of things how to defend your faith. I could sit here right now, and you would probably prefer this. I could spend 20 minutes telling you why we know for sure, I believe, that Jesus was raised bodily from the dead. I could spend another 20 minutes proving to you that Jesus was a real human being who suffered under Pontius Pilate was crucified. I can talk all day about apparent contradictions in the Bible, the historicity of Scripture. We did some of that Wednesday night with a documentary on Joseph in the Exodus. I could do that all day long. Why? Because I was raised in the world that, that prioritized the true, often at the cost of the good. Our churches were a wreck. Our marriages were awful. And we, we ruined our witness every Sunday after church when we went out to eat. But hey, we knew the truth. It's different now. I tell you what, do this. Go up to a Gen Zer. Go up to any of them. Pick any of them you want. And I want you to defend the faith by using the arguments of truth. Because, because we believe that if, if you come to the truth, you'll accept the God of the truth. Right? This is the Josh McDowell, Lee Strobel sort of conversion story. They, they did the research. They saw that Christ was risen from the dead. They became Christians. Right? And that's the mindset we have. Go up to Gen Z right now and you give definitive proof Jesus is risen from the dead. Prove it. Let me give you an idea of how it's going to go down. That's interesting. But Christians hate gay people. See how that happened? The issue is no longer about truth. It's a debate about what is good. It's a debate about what is good. When we were kids, we used to go to Kings Island every year because uh, my dad got special tickets through, through the company he worked for. I remember one time my, my sister and I were waiting in line for one of those big rides. I was really excited. And, and we're getting close to, to the front. And there was a guy blocking everyone. And he was like a, a, like a tall, older teenager, young 20 sort of guy. And, and there was a, a family who just like, dude, if you're not going to get on the ride, let me go through. And so the lady sort of taps him on the shoulder and says, sir, do, do you mind? You know, my family and I, we, we, we really just want to get on the ride. And, and this is how he responded. This is a quotation, right? I have not forgotten after 25 years, whatever it was. Okay, here we go. Huh? That was it. That was the quote, okay? So, so the lady says, oh, he must not have heard me. Okay, uh, there's a lot of people here. Sir, I, you know, my family and I, we just want to get on the ride. We've been waiting a long time, and you don't seem to be interested in getting on it. So do you care if I just sort of sneak by? And he goes, and he goes huh? Right? This goes on for five minutes, right? And eventually, a, a dude in the back, he says, hey, fella, the lady wants on the ride. He goes, 
Huh? I said, hey, fella, the lady wants on the ride. You, huh? I'm not making this up. I still remember every word he said. And then, of course, this eventually gets to where the dude's like, you stepping? He's like, huh? I'm stepping. Huh? I mean, this is, it's, it's before Twitter. You had this, right? Because Twitter's not much different now. But you see, it, 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 what mattered was not the real issue at hand. It was an indifference to the issue at hand because we have prioritized the good over the true. Who cares about complicated arguments over the existence of God when the poor are still hungry and my childhood was traumatic? If God isn't good, who cares if he is true? This is why we talk past each other. The right wants to scream about biology, while the left wants to scream about self-expression. The right talks about reality. The left screams about narrative. One defends truth, often at the cost of goodness, while the other defends the good, often at the cost of the truth. And so the cycle continues. This is 99% of the debates online. This frames our debates about sexuality, gender, race, the climate, government, family, marriage, ethics, morality. You can keep going. We call each other bigots, Nazis, deniers, uh, conspiracy theorists, groomers, and fools. We have all kinds of names for each other, but what we're fighting over is the residual of Christian transcendentalism. And what we lose in the back and forth? The beauty. Truth without goodness is cold. Goodness without truth is volatile. Both are ugly. Look at our arts. Look at our families. Look at our society. We have long rejected truth, particularly biblical truth. We are so confused at what is good that we make it up as we go. And what we find is that which is wicked. As a result, there is nothing sacred, holy, lovely, or beautiful. Everywhere you go is the mess left behind by abandoning the gospel. Everywhere you go. Well, there is a solution here, right? And you can see that Paul fits well within this tradition. After all, notice he says that that which, that which is true, that which is honorable, that which is just, that which is pure or lovely or commendable, if there is any excellence, think Deeply on these things. Be founded upon them. Paul's well within this tradition and developed it here in the text. So what do we do? The world is a mess because we have forsaken the divine. God repeatedly warned the Israelites that their greatest temptation is that they would become like the nations. And as a result, the mess of the nations would become their story. We are doing the same. You see then, that the solution to the world's problems has to be bigger than mere nostalgia. Let's go back to the way things were. It has to be bigger than politicians or policies because this goes to the very core of our soul. This has to be bigger than consumer-based religion where we gather for church to be entertained rather than we gather to be lifted up with fellow believers and to re-encounter the divine. The one who is true, the one who is good, the one who is beautiful. We've got to do more than religion, our consumer-based religion. What we need is a Savior. Jesus is the embodiment of the truth. He is the embodiment of the good. He is the embodiment of the beautiful. Therefore, we see that he is the creator of all that is true, good, and beautiful. Not only that, he is the redeemer of all that is false, wicked, and ugly. 
I'm willing to bet right now you can prove my point. Perhaps on your person, an earring, a necklace, or, or an image somewhere found in your Bible, or in your purse, or in your wallet. If not there, in your house, hanging on the wall, or on your car, hanging from the dashboard. Somewhere in your person, you will find a cross. After all, it is the universal image of Christianity. You and I take that for granted. After all, our crosses are beautiful and well-designed by gifted artists. But we never pause to think about what it is that we are carrying on, on us. Imagine, if you will, we could get on the time machine. And we will go back to the year 10 B.C. Roman uh, Republic is now firmly rooted as the Roman Empire. It is an imperial power of tyranny that will kill and crucify anyone that dare challenge it or break its laws. To the Jew, the one who dies upon the cross is nothing more than a curse of God. And then show up with your cross necklace and see what happens. You're the fool. You're the crazy one. You're the madman. But then declare, God will descend to walk among us. He will bear this image under your wicked regime. And by his resurrection, we will take that which is wicked, that which is imperial, that which is tyrannical, and we will turn into an image that is glorious, an image of love and mercy and peace and a power beyond mere military minds. And they'll say that is impossible. And that's because they had never met Christ. Around you right now is an image that proves the true, the good, and the beautiful. Years ago, there was an artist rummaging through uh, a yard sale. And he found an old, dusty painting, and he bought it for seven bucks. Now, I'm going to pause. This is not a story where come to find out that $7 paintings were $7 million. That $7 painting wasn't really worth $7. He paid too much for it. But he was an artist. Took us to a studio, ignored it for a time until eventually he, he kept seeing that there in the corner. He thought, I'm finally going to do something with that work of art. He put it up on his, on his easel and he just went to work. Finally finished the, this, this new work of art where he, he really restored it and, and, and added his own touches to it. He goes, well, now, now i got to sell it. After all, I'm an artist. So, so he has a couple of choices. One, he could take it to his gallery, put it with all of his more generic works, and they would sell for $25,000. That's a pretty good improvement. I mean, I've, I'll sell you any, I mean, I'll buy anything from you for $7,000 if I know I'm going to sell it for $25,000. Or $7 if I can, hey, I'll buy it for $7,000 if I can sell it for $25,000. <laughs> I mean, let's just keep this thing going. That's a good deal. That's, that's not what he wanted. In his, in his gallery, where he would sell the paintings, he would have a, a private room, if you will, that you would go through there, and this is where he puts his best paintings. The lighting is different, and, every, and everything is different about the setup. He, he takes it in there, he puts it up on the wall, and he takes the light, and he puts it directly on the painting so that you can see every little detail, and, you, and it really brings out the, the work of the artist. He even puts the, 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 the little rope, you know, the keep people, the, the crowd control rope, he puts it there so, so you couldn't get too close. Why? Because, because this, this work is different from all the others. And he puts on it a, a price tag of $1 million. Now that painting was $7 not too long ago. What changed? I'll tell you what changed. What changed is what the artist did to it. 
He recovered what it lost, improved upon what it was missing, and declared it valuable. That's the hope we have in the gospel. In Christ, we uncover that which is true, eternally true. In Christ, risen from the dead, we have the recovery of what is good, truly good. And what we see when we grasp that is that which is beautiful, that which is eternally beautiful. Your marriage, your family, your life, your home, your neighborhood, your society, your city, your nation, this world. We need the divine. We need Christ risen from the dead. And it is your work and mine as believers in Christ to bring about such a kingdom. What an important work that is. And let us together march forward in that endeavor. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Father, I ask that you would move us to faith.